Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our webinar. The message from CBDCs to payment banks is innovate or die. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I'm delighted to moderate our discussion this afternoon. Now, more than 50 central banks are now doing something, even if it's not very much, uh, about a CBDC. The central bank for central banks, the Bank for International Settlements, has said CBDCs are an idea whose time has come, and that it's now only a matter of time before a major economy launches a CBDC. Two CBDCs have actually launched already, and the one unequivocal lesson that they impart is that each CBDC is going to be different because every country has different needs and different motivations. But any CBDC will have an impact on domestic payment systems, and all those different CBDCs will still have to be exchanged one way or another across national borders. In fact, in all the excitement about what transactions a CBDC will make possible, what innovations it will spawn, and how it can be programmed, it's very easy to forget that a CBDC is, in the final analysis, a payment instrument. A payment instrument that is the same as physical cash, at present the only form of central bank money which ordinary mortals like us can enjoy. But how we pay is actually a lot more important than what we pay with. And it's in potentially changing how we pay that CBDCs raise extremely profound questions about the entire structure of our domestic and global financial systems, about public policy, about civil liberty, personal privacy, and commercial confidentiality, and about the nature of innovation. To discuss these and other vital issues, I'm joined by four people who wrestle with them in their different ways every day of their working lives. Will Lovell is Head of Future Technology at the Bank of England, a role in which he looks at how new technologies of all kinds, not just blockchain and AI, but conventional technologies as well, can help the central bank fulfill its mandate to keep prices and financial institutions stable and enable consumers and companies to pay for things easily and securely. His particular focus is payment and settlement platforms. Jim Kuna is a senior vice president at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, who has concentrated for much of his career on payments, and especially payments technology, innovation, security, and fraud prevention. He's now applied his long experience to research into CBDCs and is using in his study of that topic his long expertise in payments and payments technologies. Simon Gleason is a partner at Clifford Chance, specializing in banking and financial markets, an advisor to governments and regulators, as well as banks, a global leader in the development of law and policy in finance, and author of the excellent book, The Legal Concept of Money. Ricardo Correa is the managing director and global head of CBDC and digital currencies at R3, which he joined five years ago from Commonwealth Bank in Australia, where he was co-head of emerging technologies. R3 is working with a number of central banks on CBDC projects. In addition to our four panelists, we do also, of course, have you, our audience, and all five of us encourage everybody watching or listening to submit questions and comments throughout this webinar by using the Q&A or chat functionality at the bottom of your screens. We will not be saving them up to the end, but we will answer them as we go along. I'd like to kick our discussion off by asking whether the long-running distinction between a wholesale CBDC and a retail or general purpose, as it's sometimes called CBDC, has now been resolved. In a long essay in its 2021 annual report, the Bank for International Settlements came down pretty unequivocally in favor of a two-tier system in which central banks provide the infrastructural services, that's to say the issuance, the liquidity, the settlement finality, the operational resilience, and the cybersecurity for CBDC, leaving the private sector, commercial banks, and possibly other private sector firms to provide the customer-facing applications, the digital wallets to run the KYC, AML, CFT, sanction screening checks, uh, and of course, to provide the payment apps. Previously, we talked, and we, this is, I think, our third CBDC discussion. We had discussed wholesale versus retail versus hybrid or some combination of these. Now, my question, and I'd like to throw this first at, at Jim, is how realistic in the long run that division of labor is likely to be? After all, if a CBDC is stolen or subject to fraud or a bank holding CBDC falls over, or indeed a central bank decides to pay a different rate of interest on, on CBDCs, how uh, durable is that division of labor between the public sector and the private sector, if you like, in a CBDC likely to prove? What do you think, Jim? Well, Dominic, as usual, you packed a lot into one question. 
Um, basically, most of the questions are of import, but uh, let me start by saying these are my words, not necessarily those of the Federal Reserve System. I'm sure Will will say the same. Um, well, well, first, I think there's a, a couple of key premises you have within that question. Uh, I do believe that we'll end up with a public-private partnership, as you described, probably banks as intermediaries, but also I believe there'll be non-banks as intermediaries as well. I think we have the opportunity to create a great innovative platform with the central bank digital currency and then innovation on top of it for client services, for fraud prevention, all sorts of things. And one area that I think we really need innovation in by definition non-banks is in financial inclusion or the unbanked. And obviously that's different from country to country. In the US, even though we've got a very strong banking system, we still have five to 6% who are unbanked and then another 12 to 15% that are underbanked, meaning that they go to check cashers and payday lenders, et cetera. So I really think this is an opportunity to fundamentally look differently at solving some problems. We have a, a, a saying in Boston, if you've been to Boston and seen our crazy streets, that's not paved cow paths because when you pave cow paths, you get Boston streets. So in this case, I think cow paths are the current way we do things. Not that we throw them away, but there's ways to think differently about say, uh, financial inclusion, or even AML, KFC, KYC, other thing, ways of doing that differently because we're creating a new technology platform. And as far as interest rates, that's going to vary country to country as well, as far as whether you apply them or not to a CBDC. That's a very, very open question. Um, and I don't think it's settled in most countries' minds as to whether there is interest rates or not on CBDC. So I'll stop there. Thanks, Jim. I'd always wondered what the origin of Milk Street in Boston was. Now I know. Um, Absolutely. Will, what's your view on how stable this boundary can be? And, and perhaps more importantly, have we now settled the issue? Are we are all CBDCs pretty much going to be a two-tier system? Um, I think in certainly in the larger and more developed economies, they will need to be. The way that I tend to think about it is um, people sticking to the things that either only they can do or the things that they do best. So in terms of managing um, settlement risk or interbank risk and stuff like that, uh, that's one of the sort of superpowers of central bank money. And that's a thing that people like me get up every day and think about and worry about and design systems for. When it comes to things like um, building wallets, building apps, creating user experience, which encompasses a lot of the things that Jim was talking about there about inclusion and, um, you know, unbanked and underbanked communities and stuff like that. Um, there are people who are much better placed to do that. Actually, that's a place where um, competition um, and innovation can really play its part. Much as I might like to develop uh, wallets or apps, I don't think very many people would want to develop to use an app that I had developed because it's not really the thing that I do. So I think this 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 kind of quite a um, a natural shape to that. In terms of how durable it is, I think we'll see it evolve. Um, and I think that will be uh, a lot of the story about central bank digital currency across the board. It will start as something and it will evolve into something else, exactly as payment systems have, have, have done in the past. So, yeah, it's durable, but it's, it's durable because it will be able to change. Mm -hmm. If I could add one to Wills, there's actually a key point I, I usually like to make on this kind of question is whatever platform is built as the core engine, it has to be flexible enough to change. You know, I've been asked, how do I measure the success? And I say, it's 50 years out, it's not five years out because it will evolve in ways we haven't even thought about. So the flexibility to, if desired, to have direct accounts, I'm not saying that's very likely, but if desired, a system has to be able to somehow um, be flexible enough to accommodate those evolutions. Now we've, we've had our first question actually, which is, which is relevant to what we're talking about here from, from Andrea Tranquillini. Yeah. It says in the in the European Union, one would expect the Commission uh, would rule to define a single EU framework and the Euro system. The ECB would implement it as they did for, for T2 and T2S, a homogenous framework. Are they anywhere close to doing that in the light of what was said in the introduction? Isn't this a risk that a lack of a level playing field would hamper the introduction of a CBDC? So I suppose Andrea is asking whether there's a risk that the, the, the member states of the EU start to to diverge in how they go about this. Um, 
Do you have a view on that, Will? So certainly the ECB announced, um, I think it was last week, um, the, the results of a set of experiments that they have done um, over the last few years and what they intend to do over the next couple of years. It's, it's quite a high level announcement. But what it does is it talks very much to that um, framework, if you like, that, are, that, that, that might sit across the whole of um, the Eurozone. Um, they seem to be taking a sort of best of breed approach and looking at different parts of what they already have for those exper um, experiments, uh, possibly building on tips and things like that. So I think we will see something like that. It seems to be being driven by the ECB rather than the Commission. Okay. I've got a question here from Greg Chu, but I'll come to that in a minute. I'd like to deal with something else um, first. And, and Ricardo, maybe you have a view on this. The other big issue which we worried about when we first started talking about CBDCs, that somehow they would strip the commercial, the private commercial banks of their funding base. They don't have any funds, they wouldn't be able to lend. And so this would destabilize um, the entire uh, financial system. Now, some ideas were put forward to fix that, um, such as the, the payment of lower interest rates on, on CBDCs, which Jim touched on a minute ago, sticking caps on, on you know, how much CBDC individuals and companies can, can hold. They all seemed a bit a bit clumsy and would interfere, of course, with the natural flow of, of payments and, and capital through, through the system. Do you think that, that that risk of private banks being stripped of their funding is an issue which has now gone away or is it still a showstopper? Um, I think to some of the points already made, and by the way, thank you for having me on uh, the session. So uh, it's going to be jurisdiction based. I think there's different uh, motivations across some of the central banks that we're working with. I've, you know, the latest report from the BIS suggests that the two tier model seems like the best approach uh, for distribution of CBDCs, meaning that you try and maintain and preserve a lot of the uh, kind of the ecosystem and the structure that you have today, including the services and the benefits that are offered across the, the, the various participants. So I think you know, state by state, country by country, you'll probably see a difference there. If you, if you consider what's happening um, in the more advanced countries, so, so the developed side, you imagine a two-tier system would be the most appropriate, meaning that you know, CBDC may be issued by the central bank into the wholesale network, and the wholesale network may then reissue the CBDC perhaps as a stable coin pegged to CBDC. So we are seeing that use case uh, being explored, meaning that you know, you do preserve uh, kind of the, 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 the credit uh, services that the banks offer, as well as the services that they offer in terms of AML, KYC, and, and so on. So, so I, I don't think there's one answer um, for, all, for, for everyone. I think it's going to be case by case. But certainly what we see most of, probably an 80-20 rule, is that 80% of it is 80% of projects are looking to preserve and enhance the current configuration. Uh, Simon, I'd like to bring you in on the question of privacy in a minute. Before we do, can I just clear up one thing with, with Will and Jim? I think you both mentioned the question of non-banks distributing um, CBDCs. Does that create particular issues if people don't have banking licenses, but they are running payments apps, their ability to hold CBDC in digital wallets, as opposed to accepting deposits? Is, does that worry you, Will? Does it present particular issues? Um, so I, th I think we need to separate the, the names of um, entities and the functions of entities. So if somebody is taking deposits and creating credit, then they are a bank. You know, if, if they walk like a bank and quack like a bank, they are a bank and we regulate them as such. If they are a payment services provider, even if they're um, a big tech firm that has got into payment services provisions, they need the licenses to do that and they'll be regulated as such. And, and I see this as in, in a similar frame. Um, certainly within the UK, we've already brought payment service providers um, in, if you like, uh, they, they can hold accounts at the central bank and they can participate um, directly in the payment system but they have to meet the same regulatory criteria as the banks do. There isn't a, it's not a backdoor cheap path, if you like. And I see this being very, very similar. 
if people want to participate in this, they have to understand the risks and they have to have frameworks and mitigations in place for those risks. Um, the important then th thing then is to make sure we have the right regulatory framework that reflects how those companies are operating and what those risks are. And does that include holding reserves at the central bank? Well, if you need to, then yes, it does. Right. If, that's, if, that is, uh, um, if that's a requirement to address some of the risks that we're in, then you would need to hold reserves. Like I say, there, there, there can't be a sort of regulatory arbitrage if like, I'll redefine my bank as being a payment service provider or an app provider or a wallet provider and find myself uh, as a, with a sort of like cheaper yet ultimately systemically higher risk way of doing something it doesn't work like that like i say if you if you if you walk like a duck and, and quack like a duck you're a duck and uh, we will regulate you as such and i'll just add it's a good point a good time to point out that uh, you know obviously things as you said dominic uh, vary by jurisdictions so in the states i think there's still a lot of debate and discussion going on about how you know various actors could play roles here uh, Chair Powell announced a few weeks ago that we'll be doing a public consultation this summer to get into some of these questions, uh, in addition to other non-CBDC questions. But I think the roles of uh, non-banks and the regulatory treatments, et cetera, I think are you know, still under discussion and debate in the state. Some of it is solved by the fact that they may just be called money transmitters and then have to comply with KYC, AML, et cetera. That's fairly consistent, straightforward. But um, I think some of this is still open because of the nature of a CBDC. It's not the same as, you know, starting up a payment system because it's a liability of the central bank. It's not a liability of the person, you know, running, running that particular scheme. So it's, it, it's different, but I think it's still evolving in the States. Thanks. Now, now Simon, um, Jim has just raised the question of KYC AML checks. Mm -hmm. Now, Everybody involved in the payment system, not just banks, but non-banks and financial market infrastructures, payments are all subject to these FATF recommendations on uh, uh, checking the identity of the, of the beneficial owner. But if we took a pure blockchain-based approach to a CBDC, these things would just be tokens. They'd be entirely anonymous. Uh, and one of the one of the points the, the BIS makes in its in its long essay in its 2021 annual report is that actually we're going to have to go for an account based structure in which the beneficial owner of that that account is actually known. Now this seems to me to present a, a fundamental problem in the sense that you know we'd like people would like their their business to be private, their accounts to be private, but on the other hand, that's going to be very difficult with a uh, with a CBD series. There's some compromise here that. That mm. makes it work. The CBD, I mean, the BIS suggests using digital identities to kind of anonymize your identity, as it were, certainly, yeah. contradictorily. Well, I, think, I, I think the problem is a confusion of, to some extent, a confusion of thought, if you'll forgive the phrase. Uh -huh. um, the easiest way of thinking about a CBDC is as a digital representation of a physical banknote. Now, the way physical banknotes work is the central bank creates them, it blasts them out into the world, and thereafter it knows nothing at all about where they are going. Now, if you were simply to suggest what we're going to do is enable anybody who wants to transact in central bank money in a situation where the central bank has no idea who those people are, that is not really an acceptable outcome. Now, as soon as, you've, as soon as you've established that, then I'm afraid the central bank doesn't get to create the instruments and then step back. The central bank is involved, whether it likes it or not, in some process of ensuring that the instruments that it has been created are not actually being used for the purpose of money laundering, terrorist finance, or whatever it may be. Now, I think as soon as you've accepted that, one of the things you've had to accept is that we're not talking about a classical crypto token here. We're talking about a we're talking about a crypto token which can only circulate within a confined group. Now, it seems to me to be entirely plausible that what's actually going to happen here is that these things will end up as being very little more than a sort of crypto development of RTGS systems. Because the easiest way to keep this tight is to say we'll only allow people who have full a a AML systems to come anywhere near these instruments. Now, if you create a CBDC whose 
sole usefulness is as an interbank settlement token, then you know there is a slight mons level of arbit feel about that. It seems like a very long way around a relatively short point. But all the alternatives, if we're going to allow corporates, individuals, whatever, to handle these instruments, and the C and the central bank has some degree of reassurance that um, that, 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 that they're not being used for money laundering, then the central bank is going to have to set the boundaries of that system and to some extent determine what happens within it. So I, I'm, I'm inclined to suspect that this, if nothing else, indicates that your, um, your, your initial question, can we solve this with a simple wholesale retail split? The answer to that one is no. But just going on specifically to the privacy point, there is something terribly important here, which is, it's one of these points which is so big that people tend to ignore it. And it's this, if I instruct my bank to make a payment to your bank for your benefit, current law says I must specify, I must specify your identity. I must specify who you are. In other words, I must tell my bank who you are. My bank has no business knowing that. It has no contract with you. It has absolutely no authority to hold your personal data. And I have no authority to give the bank the power to hold your personal data. So the current four parties, I mean, this is kind of dealt with within the existing banking system by pretending the problem doesn't exist. But it becomes a very, very sharp problem indeed when you go outside a closed system and start thinking about payments between four unconnected entities. So this sort of toxic triangle, if you like, between money laundering, privacy, and anonymous transactions on, 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 on ledgers throws up some really you know, almost unanswerable questions and those will drive the shape of the system but the shape of the system will be more complicated than we think precisely in order to accommodate that little knot of issues you don't believe that digital identities are the solution to the unanswerable conundrum it well it 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 it, it, it becomes the problem that digital identities would be fine if it were completely impossible to access the internet anywhere in the world without a digital identity. I don't, I, I, I struggle with that. Simon, if I could add just one point here. Yeah. I think this is an area where um, new technology may help in solve some inherent conflicts and in policy choices, specifically privacy versus um, sanctions and anti-money laundering, et cetera. You know, are there ways to you know, mask identities in a way that as few entities as, as necessary know who that identity is? You can think of cases, and I, I don't want to get too technical, but you know, there are technologies called zero knowledge proofs and other cryptographies, which will yep. allow you to examine data without actually seeing the data and only get access to the data if certain conditions exist, like it's a bad guy. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you don't see the data. Um, or directory structures where you can mask the ultimate identity of someone only know to the, the, the directory owners, if you will. So I, still, I do think there's, and, and that's why uh, in the Boston Fed is working with MIT on some of our research to try to give us access to some of the latest thinking in cryptography, privacy, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of work being done, you know, Bank of Canada is doing good work in privacy, et cetera. So I think here's an opportunity to you know, as I said, not pave the cow path and potentially give policymakers better choices. Just to extend if I, oh. Uh, no, go ahead. Sorry, well, just real quick, just to extend that point because you do see uh, zero knowledge proofs and new technologies that are emerging, Simon, that may be able to uh, kind of uh, unknot that, 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 that uh, triangle you mentioned. Zero knowledge proofs is one of them, secure enclaves is, a, is, other, is another technology that's being used for secure identities. You know, it's a little bit like putting, you know, all this data into a uh, into a safe safe deposit, uh, lock lock it up, and you can you can kind of ask questions of it, but you never know exactly what's in there. Um, the other thing is, you know, aside from the technology, I wonder if there's also 
uh, the choices that we can make more on the more on the design side where and we have these things today where you know transactions at low level uh, low value uh, can be anonymous you know i can have my tokens on my phone i can bump them to your phone simon it can go over bluetooth and there's no trace um, other than a token moved from one device to another we had to connect on bluetooth but there's no trace of the connection and now i have a token sitting on my phone and that can happen at low low value low volume um, so I, yeah, so I think you know, I think there's there's the technology today. I think allows us to think about these things in a slightly different way, that we may be able to overcome some of the challenges that we have. So to, to pick up that point, I think the, the technology is, is is only one half of the picture, and 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 for sure, innovations like zero knowledge proofs and, and the like actually take you into a new place with cryptography but and it's just come up in one of the questions as well the other half of it is trust now i would say among a group of people like us and probably most of the people who are watching this um have a reasonable understanding of cryptography or zkps or at least trust that the uh, mathematicians and cryptographers de devised them, did so in good faith and have done something. For people who don't understand those technologies and are not necessarily going to take our word for it, how do they build trust in these kinds of systems? I think being able to say, hey, we've got this incredibly strong cryptography will we'll win over a proportion of the public, but there will be a proportion of people who are still skeptical. Um, and I think as we start to roll out CBDC, it will be inevitable that people will start to ask the questions, you know, picking up on something that Simon said, you know, problems that perhaps, perhaps we've been ignoring or pretending weren't there will actually come up to the fore. And it's going to be, oh, it's going to be quite a, an interesting and bumpy ride. We've had a, an observation from a member of the audience, uh, Parsi Saverna, who says, digital identity is also a question of whether you can trust the issuer of an identity. Mm. The issuer is the same as the person who issued the passport, including biometrics, you may trust them, but only a fraction of issuers actually meet this requirement at the moment, which prompts a thought in my mind. It's not just about just, you know, the, the central bank impinging on your privacy. Also, there is a risk here, and the BIS alludes to this, of... Um, the, the fangs, as it were, large uh, social media organizations getting into the payments business. And you've kind of seen this in China already with WeChat and Alipay. You can't be confident that the Chinese government isn't looking at what's going on uh, with your payments there at all. And you, variants of this problem could arise here if, you know, if, if um, Facebook and as they are and Amazon and, and Microsoft and others start to get into this uh, into this space. Now, the solution that's been put forward to this is that we all become owners of our own data. We become sovereign, the word is sometimes used. And so we decide who gets to see what we what we have. And then if we decide to buy a payment service from Facebook, we can consent to do that. And our digital identities, I guess, would work like that, provided we could we could trust them. Now, is that um, is that consistent? Simon, maybe you have a view. Is that consistent with, um, you know, us being owners of our data? Is that consistent with a CBDC working effectively, bearing in mind your triangle of difficulty? <coughs> no is the short answer. I mean, just, just, well, just, just to sort of wrap up the previous point, if, if you're anything to do with money laundering in a modern bank, you have two entirely separate tasks which are almost completely unconnected with each other. One of them is preventing the bank from being involved in money laundering. The other is compliance with money laundering legislation. The problems that we face here are much more to do with money laundering legislation than they are with actually preventing money laundering. Mm -hmm. But then going on to the privacy point, um, I that the, the whole digital sovereign, the whole identity digital sovereignty thing strikes me as a it's it's one of the it's one of these lovely ideas that was coined by somebody who didn't have too much experience of reality. What we know about people's express preference in looking at their actual usage of the internet is that they will consent to absolutely anything more or less immediately in order to facilitate the use of websites or indeed for any bunch of other reasons. And I have an awful feeling that 
the result of an initiative like that would end up being nothing more than yet another one of those irritating checkboxes that everybody checks without reading in order to get on with what they were doing. <laughs> Maybe a somewhat cynical view, but I, I, I think it shines reality. Okay, well, I'd like to move on to cross-border payments. Before we do, I'd just like to get clear with you, Simon. Greg Chu asks you specifically a question. He says, you've made some excellent points. But how do you see the problem you pose around knowing the identity of transferee being overcome? I've kind of heard you saying it's impossible to overcome. Is that the right answer to Greg Chu? Well, I mean, there's wonderful guidance from the European Data Controller, um, Data Authority, Basically saying, well, I think we, I think we can all ignore the problem on the basis that people can always be deemed to consent to receive money, <laughs> which is a lovely idea in theory. I'm not totally convinced that it works in practice. But um, I mean, the, 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 the trouble is, this is this would be a very easy problem to solve if we were to forget about broad usage and go to a sort of walled garden model where we're saying everybody who participates in this can do whatever they like because they've been pre-vetted and everything in the garden is lovely. That solves the problem, but that's absolutely not what we're trying to design here. But it is, I think, at least possible that the existence of the privacy and money laundering constraints may eventually drive us to a walled garden model. But at the moment, I don't think that's what anybody wants. Mm -hmm. Okay, could we, could we move on to, to cross-border payments? Because this is another area the, the, the BIS has been looking at. They published a paper in which they talk very explicitly about CBDCs and, in fact, multiple domestic CBDCs becoming interoperable across borders. And they came across these, they put forward these three approaches to it. It could be um, just compatible systems, or it could be interlinked systems, or it could be a single system. Uh, hosting multiple CBDCs. And then this is actually being tested. This so-called MCBDC system is being tested by, by China, uh, Hong Kong, Thailand, and the United Arab Emirates. Now, um, uh, maybe Ricardo, we, we could start with you on this question. We, we, CBDCs are all being developed at the national level, the local level at the moment. And in fact, in another paper, the BIS says only 11 of those projects, there's like 50 of them, are even looking at cross-border components. So there's a chance here to kind of fix the fact that cross-border payments are very expensive, very opaque, correspondent banks are getting out of the business. There's a real problem to be addressed there. And you're creating this new uh, form of money, this new technology, which could solve that, that problem. But it's not really being thought about that hard, except by the, by the BIS. Do you, in your work, do, you, do the central banks you talk to fretting about cross-border payments and they see this as a way of solving that problem, bringing more countries and companies into the world trade system? Yeah, uh, so that's, I mean, they present some really interesting models there. Uh, those models are being tested by Project Dunbar, as you guys may know, by mm -hmm. the Bank of International Settlements uh, uh, hub in Singapore. You know, so the, the hypothesis is, is it one network to rule them all? Seems un unlikely, but hey, let's go ahead and and, and look at what that scenario might look like and what kind of um, uh, interoperability uh, measures we might need to put in place. Things like identity, of course, being critical. In this case, a single network, you'd imagine a little bit to Simon's point, you know, a closed wall kind of, uh, if everyone's in the same network, you've got one uh, identity issuer. If you trust the issuer, well, then you can trust everyone that's in the network, right? Um, so that seems uh, like an easy option, but somewhat unrealistic. Um, the other option being kind of a network of network architectures, but on the same technology. And to, and to be fair, guys, I think, you know, the, the interoperability is super complex. And, you know, on the technology side, we've been grappling with, um, you know, a crawl, walk, run approach, meaning, hey, let's try and figure out how we interoperate just on our own technologies. You know, so this is, you know, a private Ethereum network talking to a private Ethereum network or a private quarter network talking to another private quarter network. Even that's hard, you know, because you've got different identity issuers on, you know, on either side and you've got um, obviously different notaries and different consensus models, etc. Um, but I think, you know, I think those models are useful in order to try and at least uh, grapple with some of the most important uh, aspects of interoperability. And we see a lot of interoperability solutions out there today in the form of bridges. And uh, you mentioned the MCBDC bridge between 
the Bank of Thailand, Hong Kong, the UAE, and, uh, and the PBOC. And those bridges are useful to some degree. You know, it's a little bit like building a footpath, you know, between kind of a very rocky side of, 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 of one space and a very sandy side on the other space. And so you build a bridge that's appropriate to just cross that particular area. But then you might need to build a completely different bridge just further down because the land shifted uh, and the consistency is different. And so you continue continuously build these very proprietary things. I think the goal is to build something that is more standardized and to build a protocol that allows interoperability to be possible regardless of the infrastructure that you build, regardless of whether it's one single network, multiple networks on one technology or a network of network architectures on whatever technology you want, which seems to me like the, the, the model that we should really be exploring so that we're not constraining individual sovereign countries into saying, hey, you have to build on this kind of a thing. Everyone needs to use this database else it won't work, right? I don't think that's appropriate. So um, we've, been, we've spent years, uh, the last three years, uh, working on this particular problem. Um, and, uh, you know, in the, next, in the next few weeks, you'll see a little bit more work coming out from our side anyway, around a protocol that at least starts to address kind of an interoperability uh, protocol that, that, that is more standardized and generic. So- I think it's worth adding here too, though. I'm sorry. Go no, ahead, go ahead, Jim. It'd be good yeah, to I was gonna say, I think that, you know, cross-border is, is it's extremely complicated. It's not just a technology question. You know, we could have interconnected systems and still have to deal with FX issues and different no. laws and different right. privacy and different identity issues. Yeah. And then the money, unless it's a straight remittance, it's going cross-border for some business reason, which means it's probably connected to some uh, trade finance deal or major purchase. So there are other systems. So I like to think of it as, I think so, uh, Ricardo used the term, it's a system of systems. So it's not even just one complicated system. There's interconnections outside. So the BIS uh, roadmap for uh, looking at cross-border, I think has 16 or 19 different areas of focus, only one of which is CBDC and technology. So there are many complicated areas, but I do think it's one of those proverbial cow paths that we should try to help resolve since we're you know, doing a one in, the, one in a century change here. Is it conceivable that central banks will get into the FX business? Will, I'm sure you, you have an a, a opinion on this as well. Jim, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked me because this is, this is a thing and I think it's very, it's very tempting to think about this like, a, like it's email and like, well, if we think about every payment network as an email system, why can't we just plug them all together and start sending sterling into dollars? And you're absolutely right. Fundamentally, when you're going from one currency to another, the values of currencies move against each other. Uh, and they move because of supply and demand, which means the, the movement of currency changes the exchange rate, which means somebody in that network is taking that risk. And they are going to want certainly to hedge against that risk and probably have some sort of reward for having taken that risk. You could call them a correspondent bank, you can call them uh, an exchange house, you can call them what they like, but fundamentally that activity has to happen. So I think we then need to understand, well, how do you take the friction out of that? How do you take the friction out of um, the different fraud and anti-money laundering um, law that you'll have on each side of that? Now, part of that is to do with harmonization of laws. A lot of that's to do with the harmonization of data. Um, you know, at the moment, we're still operating on sets of data formats that were designed when every byte of data you, you sent was expensive, squashed it all down. We now don't have that constraint, but we're still catching up. ISO 20022 takes us some of the way, but not all of the way, to actually having the information so that people can start to do those checks more quickly and take those frictions out. But it's not just about connecting computer systems together. Can I just ask you, because the Bank of England has done something very interesting here with, with Finality, opening this omnibus account, which is a kind of private sector way of solving this, this cross-border payment problem. Um, another initiative in the field is, is, is being launched by Baton, where they do these bilateral pre-funded um, settlements in, in, different, in different currency, currency pairs. Now, these are stablecoin-based 
initiatives and stablecoins arose simply because we didn't have central bank money available on on chain, as it were. So what's the future of initiatives like that? Are they going to be part of the ecosystem going forward or are they like to be killed off once every major economy has a has a CBDC? Will, could you just address that? What you're thinking is behind the initiative with finality would be good. Um, okay, so yeah, I mean, finality and the omnibus account is a way of starting to get into that effectively that um, tokens that are backed with central bank money. Um, and that's what they are. It's a closed system um, and the members of it are regulated entities. So it's not so very far away from the current payment system that it's that it's uh, you can think about within the current regulatory framework. Um, do I think they'll be killed off? I, I don't think so. Um, I think if you look at the value that services like the ones you've mentioned, and there are other ones out there, um, are looking to add, it's not just central bank money settlement. There's functionality um, and the removal of frictions within probably quite specific asset markets that they're looking to address. And I think if they're doing that and they're doing that effectively, then um, the chances of something being superseded by something more general seem less likely. Uh, Jim, I think they want it. Yeah, I've been sort of abused on this because the whole, you know, CBDCs grew out of the, the concern about Facebook and uh, and what was originally called Libra, now now DM. You know, private sector currencies developing a, a kind of role which exceeded their brief, if you like. I think at one point, um, and this gets into the public-private partnership and the role of uh, regulation. Uh, especially with the Finality Network, that's a perfect example of something we started doing work on a couple of years back called the supervisory node. So you can think of the Finality Network as a closed network, but what if the regulator had a node on that network and was able to monitor traffic for systemic risk, for you know, uh, safety soundness of the institutions? There's a lot of, and we are talking with Finality about that concept, there are a lot of opportunities to allow the private sector to innovate and still ensure the safety, soundness, and financial stability or systemic risk that central banks care about. So I think this is an area where technology may allow some of the best things to happen in tandem. And that's a, a great example of that particular uh, effort. Tom, just to extend on, on my side, I think, you know, not all stable coins are created equal. So I think if you've got a stable coin that's, you know, backed by, you know, high quality money reserves, those things probably don't need to go away. But if you've got stable coins that are backed by other things, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a basket of, of currencies that maybe are more volatile or HQLA that aren't as uh, kind of high quality, then perhaps, perhaps there will be an impact when you have the introduction of, you know, stable coins that are backed by reserves and CBDCs themselves. So uh, hard to tell at this stage, but, you know, on the finality side, you'd expect that, you know, to to Will's point, if it's if it's in place, it's high quality, it's doing its job, you know, the regulators are participants within those networks, why would you change that? Now, it seems to me from everything we've discussed, we're actually, the, the, the central banks are putting quite a lot of trust in the private sector to be innovative in this area, to come up with the, the new products and services, which, which reduce the cost of making domestic payments, let alone cross-border payments, but also um, provide a, a whole series of what we used to call overlay services on top of um, central bank um, initiatives. Now, I'm a bit cynical about what's happened in the in the payment sector myself. It seems to me that a small group of organisations have basically creamed off the revenues of the banks and made themselves very rich in the process without actually fundamentally changing the way in which um, payments work. Now, Simon, perhaps you have a view on this. Can CBDCs actually lead to meaningful structural change? in how companies and households make payments, more meaningful than we've seen so far from the type of innovations we've enjoyed? Um, well, my answer to that would be a fairly straightforward no. Mm -hmm. um, I, I start calling you Dr. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, I think CBDCs have, have, have a significant use um, for commercial transactions, particularly cross-border commercial transactions amongst corporates. As far as retail users are concerned, this is still a solution in search of a problem. And the reason for saying that is that most commercial users of money, most, most retail users of money, i.e. us, are completely risk insensitive 
to the risk exposures we currently face to our commercial banks. And if the truth be told, completely indifferent 99.9% .9 of the time to the question of whether our transactions are settled in microseconds or days. Um, so you know, I, I think if you look at what is currently offered to retail users in terms of the payment services they currently have access to, in order to conclude that CBDCs will make a major difference to that segment of the market, you have to be able to point to a significant advantage that those users would derive over and above the service that they currently have. And at the moment, I can't see what that might be. I mean, I take the point you should never underestimate the private sector's capability to innovate. And there might be you know, the equivalent of a web browser around the corner, and I'm just too foolish to think about it. But at the moment, I would suggest there is no such product and no such idea out there. This is quite yeah, a I good think point. I just add a Simon's. Um, yeah, go ahead, Jim. I do think the innovation, I mean, who knew we all need, I, need, I have three iPads. Who knew I needed three iPads yep. or two iPhones? Yeah. So I do think it's an area ripe for innovation. And as we know, it's not necessarily what a person wants because they know they've got a, a problem to fix. There are frictions out there. Yeah. There are um, things that, you know, hmm. you know, the cow pass, you know, things that can be done better. But also look at the, you know, this is a two-sided market. Look at the receiver of the funds. Would your landlord want to get CBDC? or two-day-old three-party check? Um, would they want to be, you know, would stores want to take CBDC at zero cost or little cost, or would they want to take a credit card or something else? I'm not saying that these are the, all the right answers, but I do think there's motivations and innovation that has the potential. And it, gets, it does get into design, and it came up earlier. If we limit the amount in a wallet to some de minimis amount because of bad guys, you know, we're not going to get to a, 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 you know, a fully functioning and very innovative platform. So I do think we need to weigh all these. I, I just wouldn't dismiss the power of innovation and parties that have a, a motive that may be solved that may not be the, the holder of the currency itself. Seems a good point to, uh, to raise at last the question Greg Chu asked a while back, which is why should a scalable, secure, compliant economic network in which assets can move from one account to another require the intermediation of batching and settlement? To refine my question, if the technology evolves to make unnecessary the two-tier system, does this change the perspective of the panel? So he's asking, you know, public sector does all this uh, underlying infrastructure, private sector, which we've just been discussing, does all this, this innovation. Uh, what if we have a system where the technology has evolved such that that distinction, that division of labor between the two actually becomes meaningless? You're nodding furiously, Simon. Um, <laughs> and, and I, uh, for once, you're saying yes. But maybe, Will, you, maybe you have a perspective on this. I, I was about, maybe it's an emphatic no. <laughs> I, was about, I was about to steal Simon's thunder and say no. Um, <laughs> but... Um, uh, uh, yeah, what do I, I mean, the, the, the advantages of a two-tier system go beyond batching um, is, 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 the, the, is the point I make. I can, I can absolutely see, uh, you know, in fact, we're already in a world where the technology would support, if you like, a, a tier one backbone that operates at the same speed as a as user facing tier two. Um, we, we can see that in conventional payment systems and, and we, can, we can see that in, you know, what, what some of the more modern platforms might look like. My point uh, that I was talking about at the beginning, I, th I think he's more how I think it's about what the different pe different actors in the system are there to do. Now, arguably, you could say once the backbone is operating at the same speed as the sort of the front end, does it become a single system? You know, well, maybe is the Internet a single system? I don't know. Um, but what I do see a distinction in is the different roles that people have and the different things that they are trying to do. And as a central bank, we will be worried about that systemic risk. We will be worried about financial stability, the impact on the um, on the financial system and all that stuff so that the public can spend money without having to think about it. So people can make investments without having to worry about it. Likewise, people who are creating innovative products want to focus on their innovation. They don't want to be hamstrung by worrying about the stuff that I'm worrying about, if you see what I mean. So those tiers are as much about risk as they are about operation. Yeah. 
To be clear, Will, are you describing a system which, we, not, not like the one we have today, where, the, where the, the private commercial banks net off payments against each other, batch them up, and send them to the RTGS to settle in central bank money? You're talking about skipping that stage eventually, is that right? Um, or just updating the, the central bank ledger in real time. I mean, TIPS does that uh, effectively. Um, the NPA system, instant payment system in Australia, works like that. Um, and yes, they're still two tier. So um, I think, you know, that, that, you know, that's what I have in mind with that when I'm saying actually some of this technology out there that's already showing that this is We're possible. talking about real time gross settlement for retail payments. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that's what Boston's building right now with FedNow. You yeah. know, it's a, it's a, it's RTGS to, to work at tens of thousands of transactions per second, you mm. know, with, with with at scale with resilience. So it's not central bank money, it's still a two-tier system, but transactions are individually processed. So it is it's feasible and it's actually happening. Yeah, it's doable. Yeah. And you still you'll need the money in your account for that to work. True. It's still commercial bank money. Yep, you still mm. need money in the bank, as as they say. Yeah. But Dominic, can I just raise a quick point about that? One of one of my favorite little factoids. Um, SS Great Britain makes the first powered crossing of the Atlantic in the 1830s. Cutty Sock, which is probably the fastest trader, is built in the 1870s. These technologies do not succeed each other. They overlap. And more to the point, the introduction of new technologies drives really serious technological innovation in the old technologies. Yes. So I think it's important to remember that for a very long time to come, even if we see CBDCs circulating, we will see them circulating in parallel with the existing payment systems, and they will place considerable pressure on the existing payment systems. And one possible outcome of all of this is that CBDCs are created, they do circulate, and they are eventually outcompeted by the old technology. Well, Simon likes to cross Atlantic. I usually use ice harvesting refrigeration for my analogies. And there, mm -hmm. there are plenty of analogies of technologies. And I always say, you're making a faster ice truck or refrigerator. And so very, a lot of, and, and there was a long overlap. It took, it took 60 years for refrigerators to be ubiquitous in the States. And so this, it, these, these things, as you all know, take decades, no matter what happens. So. Greg has stayed with the discussion. He said, undeniably, any issuer of a currency should be a regulated bank, ideally within a leading regulatory jurisdiction. How might a central bank approach this opportunity to partner with a regulated bank to issue a commercial bank digital currency? Um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, maybe you have a- Well, Tom, Dominic, I'll take one second on that and go back to the history of yeah. the US when in the late 19th century, we did have banks issuing paper currency. We had municipalities, we had uh, cities, towns, mm -hmm. And then there's a slight problem, they weren't trading at par. And once you get a currency that doesn't trade at par or checks that don't trade at par, and you know, so a bank in, a person in Boston with a, a Chicago bank uh, dollar may not get a dollar's worth of value from it. So I think that's the, the analogy, not that that's a, a reason not to have private issuers, but so to have they, only private issuers, I think creates challenges in the, the trust in those instruments, the potential for fraud. And we have a perfect example in the States, I'm sure it's repeated in other countries as well. But. So, so in the United Kingdom, you know, in Scotland, in Ireland, there are banks that issue their own banknotes. But to address that very problem of trading at par, for every note that they have in issue, they have to hold uh, a Bank of England note yeah. that effectively the, the, the books are kept the same. So there is a, there is a model for thinking about this. But those are still fairly close, small systems when you think about it. You know, CBDCs and other electronic money could be international and likely be international. So you, I think you'd have more chance for, for non-par when you're going cross borders or you're, you're dealing with non-homogeneous uh, users. Just, just, just on that par point, um, one of the ideas that does float around from time to time is the notion of CBDCs carrying interest. And as you know, there's been a certain amount of fascination with the idea of them carrying negative interest. Now, it seems to me that in order to be usable as a payment medium in the form that you're talking about, a thing has to have constant value 
In other words, it cannot carry interest, positive or negative. There's a, there's, a, there's a very interesting sort of balancing act there as to are you more interested in monetary policy or are you more interested in the provision of payment systems? Now, we're, we're down to our last five minutes and I, I'd like to, to dispense at least with, um, with, with a final question from a member of our audience uh, from A. Patel. Can you offer thoughts on cross-border payments and how they will be implemented integrated securely? Now, we, we, did, we did touch on this earlier. I don't know whether you feel there's anything to add to that. Um, Ricardo, you said you've been looking at this, uh, done a lot of work on this, and you're about to publish something quite soon. Is that right? Yeah, but I think, you know, to Jim's point and Will as well, um, there's so many layers that you need to address cross-border payments on. And you'd argue that very soon, you know, you, the technology is the, the least concern. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, things like FX, I mean, that was mentioned earlier, you know, until we solve for that, that's, uh, that's a very big conversation, a very big debate. How do we solve for FX? Who's going who's gonna to manage that? Do we just use old systems with oracles in these networks and just use kind of current FX markets? Do we, do we invent new ones like we're seeing in kind of the public space? So, I, I, I mean, that's a, that's a very long debate. I think we touched on some of the key things, but, you know, technically, I think we'll get there in the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. You'll start to see a little bit more around interoperability and true interoperability. Certainly that's our feeling. Um, but then I think there's issues that will take a hell of a lot longer than, than the next 12 months to solve. Okay, well, uh, A. Patel can look forward to your, to your paper coming out soon. Right, I, I, I think we must, we must stop in about uh, four minutes time, but I'd like to just close out with my, with my final question, which is really about whether we actually need CBDCs. As we've talked about this afternoon, we're already getting instant payment. We have it in many markets, and even the United States is moving in that direction now. We're coming close to retail, real-time gross settlement as well. We've got open banking, open data initiatives in most of the English-speaking countries at least, and that's opening up uh, competition in uh, for, for payment services and bank accounts and the rest of it. Um, from a lot of what I've heard this afternoon, the CBDC isn't going to represent a huge advance on our present system of giving reserve banks access to, to central bank money. Um, we've even seen that you can settle security tokens um, very satisfactorily using uh, non-central bank, non-CBDC solutions. So the argument that's gonna lead to a takeoff in security tokenization market seems somewhat exaggerated as well. The pandemic's taught us we can do helicopter money already. If we need to do it, we can even charge negative interest rates. We have those today. So what, what are CBDCs actually going to do for us? Um, now, Ricardo, I know you're under a bit of time pressure, so why don't you give us your thoughts on that first? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the, one of the key innovations uh, that we keep calling out is this notion of programmability, you know, so the ability to add kind of rules to your money. Now, that's a double-edged sword, to be honest, or a double-edged uh, kind of... Uh, uh, kind of an opportunity, but also a concern if you consider that programmability might be useful maybe in the wholesale side, but then gets really tricky at the retail side. You know, if you control the money, is it really a public good utility and is it, is it something that's free and open, accessible, anonymous and private, etc.? cetera? Um, uh, you know, the other, the other area is instant settlement, um, but we're starting to see instant settlement solutions and we hear, and we hear you know, I, I liked what Simon suggested that, you know, uh, there's, there's, uh, kind of um, obsessive innovation on old technology to catch up. And, and oftentimes you can get there with the old technology. So I think the jury is out, to be honest. I, you know, I think, you know, we look at resilient systems. So, you know, distributed systems being a little bit more resilient than centralized systems. But we've been building resilience in central systems for years. So, I mean, my view is, is that there's still more work to be done. Uh, I don't think we have the answer just yet. So, Simon, would you like to be paid in a central bank digital currency that can't be spent on alcohol or tobacco? <laughs> What's your Do we need CBDCs more, more generally? Possibly, um, but we have yet we we have we have yet to invent the thing that we need them for. Can I guess I'll add mine. Now, first of all, if I was Sweden, I'd be thinking of a use case because paper currency is not in circulation. If I was a Caribbean island, I'd want it for efficiency. So there there are different motivations for doing it. My personal view is we'll eventually uh, get there. We'll eventually get the right technology, but that's just mine. I don't think that it's definitely not uh, a decision made in the States at all about whether we're going to issue or not. But my job is to make sure that technologically we're ready and we understand what's possible. 
And just for the record, I, I'm not big on programmable money. I think money should be stored and moved very efficiently and, and with less friction. And innovation can go on top. You know, put your, put your smart in a wallet or put your smart at the register that looks for my digital identity that proves I'm 18 or 21 to buy a product. So I, I wouldn't put it in the money. I, don't, I believe in, in relatively dumb money, put it that way. <laughs> I like that, dumb money. Will, a last yeah. word from you. Do we need CBDCs or should we, can we have a dumb CBDC? I think I think we'll start with dumb CBDCs and I think they will get smarter as we go. Um, similar to Jim, I mean, the, the official line from the Bank of England is we are minded to issue a uh, digital currency, which is probably the most British thing ever, but, which means we're working very hard on it, but we've not taken the final decision to, to, to roll one out. Um, I think it's very, very hard to see where those benefits are. I also think when you look at the current payment system, next time you're holding your debit card and typing the number into a web browser you need to ask yourself if, if that's the solution you would invent to that problem and i think the answer is a clear no i think we will look back on it um 10 years 10 years hence and go well of course in the same way that we look back on decimalization does anyone want to go back and have pre-decimal currency no they didn't but it still took 150 years for the uk to decide to decimalize so um you know let, let's not be the guys who were sitting there going well really 12 times table is not that bad <laughs> no. No. i can remember avoir du pas and all my times tables yes but yeah. uh, 12 by 12 absolutely yeah um Sadly, I think that's all we have time for. Um, I'd like to thank our, our panelists, Will Lovell from the Bank of England, Jim Cooner from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, Simon Gleason from Clifford Chance, and Ricardo Carrera from our sponsors at R3. I'd like to thank the audience too, also for your questions and your comments. Uh, some of them we've, we are still there and we will address those uh, in due course and share them with our panelists. But for now, it's goodbye from the five of us. <laughs>